So, Genesis, I want us to... I, I said that we were only going to do two weeks, but I felt last week, you know what, we've got to do three before we get into the story of Abraham. And I want you to understand... We can approach any study of the Old Testament as, well, that's interesting, but does it really matter? And Messianic Jews, which would be people who were raised in the Jewish faith who have come to find that Christ is the Messiah, um, would say, you cannot understand the story of Christ without the Old Testament. And I have found that what we have a tendency to do with the New Testament, apart from the Old Testament, is we get a lot of interesting things, but we don't actually understand why God's doing any of the things he's doing. And the Old Testament fills in those, those gaps and answers those questions. And so, so far, we've only looked at a few of the stories of Genesis 1 through 11, because our point is not to do an exhaustive study of those first few chapters, but I want you to recognize that Genesis 1 through 11 were written after Genesis 12 through 50. So Genesis 12 through 50, the story of Abraham and his family, is attributed to Moses and then other writers. And we know it couldn't just have been Moses because his funeral is in in there. And most people can't write about their own funeral. Um, And most scholars believe that Genesis 1 through 11 was written during the Babylonian exile. So they've already settled the promised land, and now they have been exiled into Babylon. Um, So this was written much later, but a lot of this story is kind of the origin story or the um, preface um, of the story of what is um, coming in the rest of Genesis. And I'm going to show you a video by the Bible Project today. I think they're another one of incredible tools to understand large amounts of information in very short pieces. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show one of those on what is somewhat of a, a controversial topic, and yet you will see throughout Scripture it shouldn't be controversial. Like we see this throughout Scripture, but we ignore it because it's hard to understand. I, I want to do that. There's a lot in this story that hinges between everything leading up to Noah and then the introduction of Abraham, which is why I want to talk about this today. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis. We're actually going to begin with the last verse of, of chapter 10. But the story, this story, the Tower of Babel, is found in chapter 11, the first nine verses. Um, We've been looking at chiasms so far. So the very first story we looked at was the story of creation. We found there was a chiasm. um, And if you'll remember, um, a chiasm is a literary tool we find throughout the Bible uh, in which uh, there's a beginning and there's an ending and there's a mirroring. And sometimes that mirroring is A, B, C, and then a repetition of A, B, C. We found that in the the story of creation, day one and day four mimic each other. Day two and day five mimic each other. Day three and day six mimic each other. And we found in the very middle of that, If and and, uh, I had someone come up to me last week and say, well, how did you come to this word if you take... Um, the very center of the Hebrew scriptures. And, you, and when we look at chiasms, it's important we, we do have to look at the Hebrew because we can't just take the English and go, oh, it's there. There are all kinds of things. And today can be a little confusing. And so I'm going to share with you several things. I don't want you to get overloaded with this. I want you to see broad strokes. We're going to come back to this story. But we found if we take the Hebrew scripture of the account of creation, the very center of that chiasm is a word moed, which is the Hebrew word for seasons. 
And we've been, I've been sourcing a lot and referencing a lot of material from Marty Solomon, who is an evangelical Christian who went to Israel, uh, met a Jewish rabbi, and it completely blew his mind. And he found that this, uh, you know, many of these Jewish teachers that did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God knew more about Jesus than he did as an evangelical Christian, which prompted him to stay and to study and to understand the Old Testament, and it made so much of it come alive. Um, he has a very popular podcast out called the Bema Podcast, B-E-M-A, um, if you would like to look that up. Um, but we found that chiasm there. And this is an interesting literary structure because I never studied this in seminary. Um, this is Now, that doesn't mean other seminaries didn't teach it, but the one I went to didn't teach it. And so that's one of the reasons I'm pointing them out to you um, so that you will see them because we're going to see these repetitively through Genesis 12 through 50. We left the story of creation and we went to the story of the fall and we saw com- a complete mirroring of the first and last part of the story. So if the creation story was ABC, ABC, the fall story was ABCD, DCBA, and we found that the very center of that chiasm was God walking in the garden asking, where are you? Not focusing on the punishment, not focusing on you're terrible, not focusing on I'm done with you, but simply a call out to those that he loved that are no longer in the place that they once were, encouraging them to come back. Last week we looked at the story of Noah and we found that Noah and we found that a chiasm can be found not just in a, a very tight clump of verses, but we can actually span chapters. And then you will even find that in some ways stories can make their own chiasm. And we find stories behind stories behind stories. But the Jewish writers who were, or, or they weren't Jewish at the time, the Hebrew, early Hebrew, early ancient Eastern people were incredibly intensely detailed in their writing, in their storytelling, in ways that we today in the West, we do not even think this way. And we have a tendency to go through these stories and we have a tendency to think, well, I know subpoint A and subpoint B and I know plot point here and I think this is the climax of the story and this is the main thing we should know. But they embedded within their story structures in which they want you to know the story, but they also want you to know what is really the point of the story and that is where the chiasm comes in. So we found in the story of the flood, uh, we, f- we find this very interesting parallel between the beginning part of the story and the ending part of the story. And in a chiasm, when you find the beginning and the end, somewhere in the middle is the treasure. And we find that in that, the very center of that story is a statement by God, or not a statement, but about God that just said, God, remember Noah. And so we ended last week talking about the fact that not only did God remember Noah, God remembers us, God remembers you. And it is not the kind of memory loss like I forgot about Noah because at that part of the story, Noah's floating on a flooded world. Like he's, he and his family are the only living uh, humans on the planet. It's not like God forgot they were there. But instead, in the Old Testament, when it talks about God remembering, it just means that he was on his mind. He didn't forget him, and then all of a sudden he remembered him. God is on his mind. And so today I want to share this story because this is a hinge story for these two sections of Genesis. There are multiple chiasms, and then there is a chiasm that Marty Solomon himself points out that I am going to share with you, but, um, but that's not going to be our focus for today. I want you to hear this story, and I want to avoid that lullaby effect we've talked about before. I know the story. 
It's a familiar story. I can shut down. I know what the main point is. I know what happens. I want us to find the chiasm in this story as well. And this is going to propel us next week when we start, start talking about Abram. And it's a story we're going to reference many times in the coming weeks. It starts this way in chapter 10, verse 32. If you want to follow along on version, I'm um, seeing these chiasms are a lot easier because I put it on version, and uh, you can see it on those notes. It says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies. In their nations, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So we see this is sometime much later after the story of Noah, and they have spread out and they have formed nations. So there's a lot more people on the earth, and by a lot, probably not a whole lot, at least enough to make a city, we're going to find in these next few verses. Verse or Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, when God first created Adam and Eve, do you remember what he said he wanted them to do with their lives? There were really two things. Does anybody remember? Say that again. Fill the earth. Yeah, be fruitful and multiply. And then manage their creation. The plan from the beginning of Adam and Eve's life was always to be with God, working on the earth with God as partners with God. But his instruction was go fill the earth. That's going to be important in this story. So let's go back to verse 1. The whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, and then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth which is what God had intended from the beginning, to be dispersed. But we're going to build a tower so that we can settle here all together and not disperse. And the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, the word Babel is taken from a Hebrew word that means confusion, which is why that verse says that very thing. And here's what I want to do. I want to go through, there's, there's so many things we can talk about here, and, and we don't have a lot of time, and you know, dads are getting ready to go out, and I don't know what you guys are going to do today. I know what I'm having for lunch today, and I'm anxious to get to it, um, but this is important stuff. So there's a part of the story we need to understand, there are themes in the story we need to understand, and there's a chiastic structure that we need to understand, and um, we're going to leave here going, I don't know what we just heard, but it's all going to make sense as we enter into the story of Abraham, all right? So I want you to stay with me and, uh, and don't, 
don't worry if you get a little lost. You can come back and listen to this again later. All right, last week we talked about what we have seen so far as kind of the spread of evil over the world that started with the serpent saying to Eve, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, of course God didn't say that. But we have evil which is defined in our context as choosing anything other than God and what he has already given us. And we see it spreading, it starts with the serpent and it goes to Eve. And then it spreads from Eve to their marriage, Adam and Eve, it's spreading out. And then it goes um, from their marriage of Adam and Eve to their family. And we have the follow-up story of Cain and Abel, which is also a very interesting story and how, how much the story of Cain and Abel mirrors the creation story. We didn't, we're not going to talk about that in this series. But we did talk about that um, when we talked about the first few chapters about a year and a half ago. All right, from the family, it goes to the rest of the world, and we entered into the story of Noah. Evil has now spread into everyone, and there was one man found righteous, and that was Noah. But what we found is that there was everybody, all their thoughts were on evil only all the time. And so evil has spread now to the whole world. And then we have this kind of incredible story where God kind of does this reset and he sees Noah, and he remembers Noah, and we have this incredible flood story, which we, I believe there was a worldwide flood, and I believe that because every ancient civilization has a flood story. It's one thing if we have one, and no one else in the world talked about a worldwide flood, but every ancient civilization has a flood story. So there are different interpretations by each civilization on what was happening in that moment. Um, But this is what we read in Scripture about that moment of this worldwide flood. We have this reset. And then uh, verse 32 in chapter 10 tells us is a, a period of time has gone by. People are spreading out. And we do not see everyone coming back to God through Noah like we would hope that story would be neat and tidy And as we often read, Noah is kind of this next Adam. And yet, just like the first Adam, this one just couldn't stand the pressure and the temptation to look at things outside of God. And so now we have this uh, rising population and they're coming to this place and they've decided we don't want to spread out and we don't want to fill the earth. We want to all settle right here and we're going to build this huge tower. Now here are some of the themes that we see um, coming and then evil continues again through the rest of the world is how that section ends. Some of the themes we see in this that you may have questions about, number one, there's a common language. Everyone's speaking the same language, which makes sense if um, everyone is descending from Noah at this point, I guess. There's a common language. People are migrating and settling. So they're all coming together into one place, which is not what God intended. God intended to spread out. There was something in the process of spreading out that was good for humanity, and there was something about all clumping together um, that was destructive. And we see what Marty Solomon says is what we see is evil organizing itself, this kind of rejection of God and his plan, Now they're organizing themselves to build this big city. We also have this innovative technology, um, which is the brick. And there's this very interesting um, point of this story where there's this internal conversation going on and um, these people are making these different statements and we find this in verse... um, Verse 3, it begins in verse 3, and it says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then it says, then they said. Now, we don't tell stories like this, even today. I mean, sometimes we do. If it, it's such a, a crazy story that this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Uh, but whenever we read this in the Old Testament, and it says, they said. And then right after a verse, it says again, then they said. That marks a different conversation, not a continuation of the same conversation. Which becomes important when we see God's response to this thing that is happening. Because one of the things that we sometimes struggle with is innovative technology. The idea that innovating or technology is bad. The idea that progressing or doing something more is a bad thing. And what we find here is that God is not upset that they've discovered bricks. Technology can be used for good or for bad. Technology is great when you need to build a house to keep out the storm or to keep out wild animals. Technology is great when you want to use brick to build cisterns or wells and they're going to hold up and not just collapse under the weather. So we have this kind of innovative technology for them, which is the brick. It's not good or bad. But the question is, how do they use this technology? Do they use it for good or do they use it for something else? And we find they're using it for something else. What we also find is that humanity is going to achieve something that God doesn't want them to achieve. He comes down, he looks at the tower, and what's the big deal with the tower? We have towers that have, have to be bigger than the Tower of Babel all, in all of our big cities around the world. Why would God be upset that they're building a tower. And why does he not come down and have big consequences when we build these huge tower after huge tower after huge tower? The technology was not the issue. But they're doing something that God doesn't want them to do. They're achieving something God doesn't want them to achieve. We also see this theme of continued rebellion against God. Let's stop scattering. Let's Let's gather, and we're going to build a tower unto ourselves so that we can be the center of the story and not God. And then finally, we have this very interesting statement that says, we will go down and do this thing. Who is we? Is this God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? But it says, they, or we, are going to confuse, which is the word Babel in Hebrew, their language, and we're going to scatter them. So what is with this story? Now, it's interesting, and a person could walk away just with the contents of the story and say, well, God doesn't like technology. God doesn't like cities. And if God doesn't get what God wants, he comes and there's a huge punishment for everybody. And quite honestly, that is often how this story is read. But is that the story that the authors were trying to tell? Now, if we remember the chiasm, then we can come back to this and we can kind of discover what they're trying to say. And if you'll remember to the ancient Near Easterner, learning happens by discovering new truths. And this is how the Bible is meant to be read. So in other words, if you want to learn something, you need to discover it. That's one of the reasons that, that Jewish rabbis teach by asking questions rather than by what I'm doing right now, which is giving information. There was certainly a part of giving information, but they believe you can't actually learn something unless you explore and discover for yourself, which I believe is absolutely true. In a chiasm, you identify the treasure by finding the bookends and working towards the center. And I'm a couple of slides ahead now. So next slide. And we find this chiastic structure. 
that is this ABC, ABC repeating pattern, which is what we find in the creation story. ABCD, DBC, or that should be DCBA. I don't know what DBCA is. This should be DCBA. I do know my alphabet. Um, as you have a complete mirroring, and that's what we're going to see in this. So I, I, next slide. What I've done again is, uh, so I did a little better. I still can't do it as good as Jeremy can do it. That's probably what he was working on. But um, I've tried to change the color and tried to show you the chiasm in this. And I'm not going to keep, like in the future weeks, we're not going to keep going this detailed because we just don't have time to do this for everyone. I hope that you're going and you're learning some of this on your own and you're spending some time looking for these things yourselves. Look on the left-hand side. We began with verse 32. The chiasm we're going to look at. Marty Solomon says the chiasm begins in verse 32. Um, depending on who you read, lots of different people will say the chiasm's different. There are lots of interpretations even of what the chiasm is, but I think this is a pretty good one. Um, and we find, see, A1, B1, C1, then the treasure... Then we go C2, B2, A2. We have a mirroring of the story. In chapter 11, verse 1, the whole earth had one language, and they were migrating from the east. If we drop down to A2, we find that the Lord confused the language, and the Lord dispersed them. The great similarity there. We go back up to B1, and we find that they're saying, let us make bricks and come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. If we go to B2 says the Lord dispersed them and they left off building the city. Very close mirroring. And then a C1, the Lord came down and in C2, verse 7, God says to somebody, come let us go down. So we see this mirroring in the chiasm just like we've seen in the other passages we've looked at so far. And if we go back to the middle, we find this Middle verse, which is verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, Marty Solomon says there's another chiasm here based on Hebrew lettering within this passage in which there are four primary Hebrew letters that repeat over and over and over again and in his chiasm, you find the center of, of that in verse 4. And verse 4 is the verse that says, They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower and make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. But I find the one we're looking at today is verse 6, which is very similar, but they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, what are we to do with that? If you read as a Westerner this story, even what I've just shared with you, it's very easy to go, well, I don't know. Is it time to go yet? <laughs> it's very easy to do that. But in this particular story, this is the way we read this. Well, what is the point then? Scripture tells us that it's dynamic and it's living and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is supposed to change us and move us. And as we interact with it, it should not just be a good story. 
But that's what it's become for many people. But instead, it's something we should interact with. Even throughout the Old Testament, the idea of reading Scripture was not the idea of transferring information from one thing to the next. The idea is letting it flow through you, pass through you. You engage with it. You interact with it. And God speaks to you through it. And so that's why we can all read this story together. And you might right now be saying, I know exactly what God's saying to me through this. And someone else may say something very different. And you may actually read the same story today and be like, this is totally what God's telling me right now. And then you may read that story again six years later and be like, you know what? I think God's saying something else through this story to me now. It is an an amazingly complex scriptural text in which we just don't think in this much complexity anymore which is a problem when we look for plot points and what's the main part of the story and what are the details of the story, and we go, well, that's interesting, but it doesn't apply to us today. But if we go back and we look at the creation story and we find that what the author is trying to tell us is that God is still walking through the garden asking, where are you? Is that, could that be, could there be anything more relevant today? Where are we? Where am I? Or if we look at the flood story and we find that the, the author is trying to point us to a place of saying that God remembers. But you don't feel like the flood story matters because, I mean, there's not a flood. Or if it is, it's really localized and really small. We don't have a worldwide flood. So I don't really know, I, I mean, I guess... If there was one, I could take the measurements and go build a boat if I wanted to save all the animals, but I don't really know how this applies to me. But God remembers you. Does that apply to you? I think so, especially if you're going through a difficult time, that God is bringing you to his mind where you are. See, this is where Scripture becomes beautiful and engrossing and engaging and draws us in and it becomes dynamic and not just a story and not just information and not just, you know, they wrote a great novel back in the ancient Near East and we still talk about it today, but it's not real. But we often come to that conclusion because we don't actually understand the story they're trying to tell. So we come to this story. What is it that God comes down and he looks and he says... We don't intervene like they're on a path and nothing will stop them. Now, there is a theme that um, that Marty and the rabbi that he studied under, John Foreman, that they follow through that begins with the story of creation about discipline and self-control and it is the ability to know when to stop and they say they point to this thing and we'll talk about this theme another time but we're not doing it right now but they talk about this theme where god created for six days and then stopped he knew when to stop and as a people we ourselves don't often know when we should stop now i think there's some relevance to this because one of the fruits of the spirit is the, the ability to be disciplined, self-controlled, to know when to stop. And what they reference in this particular passage is the idea that they have now started on this path of growing and developing technology, but they are doing it in a way that is con- 
continually and consistently moving away from God. And if they don't intervene at this point, they're going to continue as one group to move away from God because that's the place in which they are headed. And they're just going to start creating stuff and they're never going to stop. But there's a place for self-control in this. And they liken it to the idea of cancer. That cancer structure is this creation of cells and never stopping. And eventually, if you don't know when to stop, it will kill you. So it's an interesting thing. We're not going to spend any more time on it than that. But we have this place. You're headed in a direction that I don't want you to go. What we don't see in this story is God punishing anybody unless you view the addition of different languages uh, as punishment, which you certainly could. But we don't have God directly coming down and saying, I'm mad at you, you're in trouble, and I'm going to punish you. And this is a theme that we're going to see throughout the story of Abraham that may be a little foreign if you grew up in a system in which it said, God is coming after you if you don't do the right thing. Because God still demonstrates love even when we do the wrong thing. All of this points to this place of them coming down, whoever them are, and this being a really incredible intervention. Some other themes that then come out of this um, story up to this point is the fact that they are moving farther and farther away from God and the West, and it's for us who live in the West to recognize the West didn't exist the way it does today. He's not talking about the United States of America. Like, But when they left the Garden of Eden, they went east. And when Cain was set out wandering, he went east. And then when Noah settled down, the ark settled back down after the flood, it had brought him farther back west. And there's this interesting archaeology there's this interesting geology geography i'm trying to find the right word geography is the right word there's this interesting geography of moving west is moving closer to god moving east is moving farther away from god it does not mean that if you live on the east side like you're away from god but it is this this interesting description of a people moving away from them and now they're moving east and migrating and settling farther and farther from god and that is not what God wants. If you'll remember the story of the fall, when he's walking through the garden, the chiasm we found in that story, the treasure was God saying, where are you? He wants us to be with him. And these people have organized themselves with this new technology to be self-sufficient and self-aggrandizing so that they don't even need God anymore which is certainly a lesson we could learn today in the midst of all of the great technological advances that we have. How do we use our technology? Is it for good or is it not? We see this theme that God doesn't want them to continue on this path, and so he scatters them, which Marty Solomon says is the center of the chiasm that his teacher found through the actual letters in the Hebrew of this passage. And he scatters them by confusing their language. We then also have this interesting conversation in which God says, let us go down and do something. Which is a bit strange for us. And we um, have a tendency to say, well, that's 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But um, I'm actually going to skip slides and jump ahead to Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32, in, in this passage, we find Moses uh, recounting, assuming Moses is the author, recounting the same story of the Tower of Babel. And he says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And that used to say the sons of Israel. Our modern English translations used to say the sons of Israel until they found an older text at Qumran that said the sons of God. And then verse 9 says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, which is where we're going to, that's a big part of where we're headed over these next few weeks is that very verse. What is about this uh, this people? So I want to show this short video, and then we're almost done. I know you're getting hungry. Uh, this is a Bible Project video on this group. And we find this group in multiple places in Scripture. We find this group um, in the in the beginning in which God created. We find this group in this story, the Tower of Babel. Um, we find this group in the introduction to the story of Job in which the sons of God uh, come and to the heavens and they gather and they speak to God and they decide that Job should be tested. We find this in Paul when Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we, we wrestle against rulers and authorities, principalities, rulers of the air, rulers of this world. And this is this idea that if you, I can't remember when I first introduced this, but this was a while back I first introduced this, this idea of a divine council or the sons of God or these rulers and authorities. They do a really good job with this quick video just to oversee this idea that Moses is telling has happened at the Tower of Babel with this particular council. Let's look at this video. For most of human history, people have believed in some kind of spiritual realm that exists alongside the world as we know it. Right, and the biblical authors are no exception. Yeah, for them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's space as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the Bible, they're called the sons of God, or the rulers and authorities, or even sometimes the divine council. So that sounds really important. What does the divine council do? Well, they're introduced in Genesis chapter 1, where they're called the host of heaven, that is, the sun, moon, and stars. And there, they're also called signs, meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status. Yeah, so in Genesis 1, God appoints them to rule over the day and night. Exactly. And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite King Ahab. Or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. But why does God need a team? If he's powerful enough to create the whole universe, he could surely rule it without any help. Well, he doesn't need them. 
But apparently the God of the Bible wants to share authority with others. Oh, right. God shares his rule with human partners on earth. And so in the same way, there's a parallel story of God sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners. Yes, that is, until it all falls apart in a twin rebellion. So you have humans who want to rule on earth on their own terms. So they start building their own nation using their own definitions of good and evil. Yeah, the famous story of the building of Babylon. But check this out. When biblical authors like Moses or Isaiah looked back at the origins of Babylon, they saw more than just a human rebellion, but also a spiritual rebellion. What was this spiritual rebellion? Well, there were members of the Divine Council who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God, and they rebelled. And so these created beings deceived humans into worshiping them instead of the Creator. And so Babylon becomes the biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. And so God scatters the people from Babylon into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says this is when God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. Yes, and this is why when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice. Human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. Yeah, when humans give their allegiance to these powers, it leads to a world like ours. Right, and the best example of this is the story of the Exodus, where we're told that the Egyptian genocide of the Israelites was inspired by Pharaoh and by the gods of Egypt. That's really intense. But it's not the end of the story. When God rescued the Israelites from Egypt and its gods, he invited them to become his covenant partners and learn a different way of ruling the world. And they agree to it, but in the end they don't honor the partnership. They give their allegiance to other gods. And so this leads to their exile in Babylon, where they become slaves once again to a foreign nation and their spiritual rulers, awaiting a new exodus into freedom. And this is where the story of Jesus picks up. He said he was here to rescue the world and take it back from the rebels. Which rebels, the human ones or the spiritual ones? Exactly. For Jesus, it was all connected. When he marched into Jerusalem for Passover, he was announcing the ultimate exodus. He was there to confront and overcome all rebel powers and authorities, and he did it by giving up his life. So this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. Yes. Jesus condemned our evil by allowing the rebels to unleash all their hate and evil on him. But then he overcame it with the power of his love and resurrection life. And then Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him. Yeah, the ultimate human and divine partner. This is really good news. Yeah, and it's why the apostles started inviting everyone to give their allegiance to the risen Jesus, to discover freedom and a new way to be human. Now, while Jesus gained a decisive victory over the rebel powers, he didn't destroy them. They're still around causing problems. Yes, and in fact, they are the problem. The apostles said that humanity's real enemy is never another human. Rather, it's the spiritual powers that animate our cultural idols that inspire hatred, division, and violence. Ah, so when I see people hurting other people, behind it is the divine counsel gone rogue. How do you deal with this kind of enemy? Well, the Apostle Paul said we can resist by putting on the character traits of Jesus like armor, faithfulness, justice, and peace. 
And he said that our only weapon is the word of God. That is, the biblical story of good news that Jesus has overcome all rebels with the divine power of his life and love. Now, if that's a new concept for you, you're thinking, oh, that is really weird. That is really weird. But I hope that maybe you even see within that this interesting dynamic. That really sounds like our world today, not just the world we read about back then. So I don't want you to leave here just being focused on that. But we have that interesting activity going on within this story. But ultimately, what I would say this story is about, and the reason that Abraham is so important is because Abraham addresses the problem that this demonstrates, is that God is still looking for people who are willing to go where he calls them. But where he calls them is not just to a place of subservience. He's not just calling them to a place where you just have to do what he wants if you want to go to heaven. But he's calling us to a place of rest and peace, of joy and hope, a place where we are reconciled to one another. The very characteristics that we think about heaven when we die, he's calling us to that type of, of community now, which is what Jesus would say, this is what the church is about until Jesus returns. So he's still looking for people who are willing to follow. We see that in the story of Noah, I mean, how many of us would be willing to build a boat in the middle of a desert when there's no rain to speak of? Why? He, but he was willing to listen. And he knows this group of people at the Tower of Babel, they're not willing to listen because they're the center of their own story. They want to be the center of the story, which is our constant struggle. It was the struggle of Adam and Eve. It was what the serpent wanted them to do. It's our struggle today for us to be the center of the story instead of God. And ultimately, the question that God is still asking is, where are you? Because he created us to be with him, and he still wants us to be with him. As far as the scattering and this increase of languages, there's this interesting scenario now that if if they are going to work together, if humanity is going to somehow come together, it's going to be harder, but somehow we're going to have to get to know each other. We're going to have to learn each other's languages. And if we're going to work together with God in the way in which he has called us and told us we would, that means that we're going to have to work together. There's a quote by Marty Solomon. He says, you cannot learn the language of another culture or a people without learning something about their perspective. Learning the diversity of perspectives always provides one with a sense of pause and consideration. It requires a sense of learning how to control one's desires in order to reach a common goal together. In the confusion of Babel, God was not so much, has not so much slapped our hands as he has given us a new redemptive project that will, that will cause us to be the people that grow into the humanity that bears his image. A humanity that knows when to say enough, a people that trust the story, a people that might just find a place of rest. So God is looking for someone that will follow him back to the place we were created to be. And this is the hinge pin that introduces us to the very next character in this book of Genesis, Abram. We'll pick that up next week. 
But the question that we can leave, and I know I've given you lots of information, and if you grew up in, in kind of a, a, a religious background like I did, a lot of these things are things you may never have heard before, but some of you may have. You may have been learning this your entire life. Some of my good friends, like, hey, did you all learn about this stuff in seminary? And they're like, oh, yeah. Well, I didn't. But in my own discovery and study, and then from the help of other people who have gone before me, to discover this deeper beauty within Scripture is really a wonderful thing. And if we are to leave today with one question or something for you to consider or wrestle with or seek to explore or discover in your own study of Scripture, it would be this, where is God calling you to follow Him? And where have you built your tower? Unto yourself. This is what I want. This is all I'm willing to do. These are my goals. These are my hopes. These are my dreams. I don't care what anyone else says. This is what I want for my life. And God is still wanting us to answer his call. Where is God calling you to follow him? In your work and in your family and your neighborhood and the times in which you drive to the store or you travel to see someone else or when you come to be in this body of Christ. Where is God calling you to follow Him in your relationships or in your marriage or as a parent or as a child? Where is God calling you to follow Him? God is constantly issuing the call and it's described in so many different ways. And there are times that we see God showing up to different characters in the Bible in very very um, solid physical forms like the burning bush for Moses. And there are places that this is described in Scripture as God standing, knocking, waiting to see if you'll invite Him in. This constant call that is being shared with us. Where is God calling you to follow Him? It just may be that some of the turmoil that we find in our lives is God, maybe not confusing our language, but doing something to upset our lives just enough that we might be more open to listen to his call than we were before. Would you pray with me?